Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. All right, so we are continuing our crazy series through the crazy book of Revelation. Uh, last week, we talked about how God's perfect love for his people not only is expressed on the cross, but in how God also comes against those who oppose his people, right? It makes sense, right? If somebody truly loves somebody, that is not only expressing what they're willing to do for that person, but what they're willing to do to like protect that person. Uh, anyone who might threaten or mock or persecute or do bad to that person. And uh, I've, I've seen this in like my five-year-old son. Right? Some of you guys know him. My five-year-old, uh, Haddon, is, is quiet. He's, for the most part, like mild and timid. And I don't say that in a bad way. Like I think it's kind of endearing. But if someone messes with one of his friends, like it's on. It's on, right? Like, he's got this secret mode that just activates. And he'll go, like, no, leave my friend alone. And I remember the first time that, like, all the neighborhood dads saw this side of my son. And it came out of, like, nowhere when he was defending one of his friends when, like, all the boys were kind of fighting. Uh, and then all the neighborhood dads were like, whoa, where did that come from, right? Because they just thought him to be, like, quiet and timid and and, and you see, the reason that Haddon expresses that in that way is because love isn't just expressed in what you're willing to do for somebody and serving them, but in how you're willing to defend their dignity and their, their honor, your willingness to avenge them if that's what it requires. And this picture, this picture I give you of my son is just a small faint picture, just a faint metaphor that compares to how willing God is to defend his people, how willing God is to defend the honor of his people. You see, one of the key ways in the scriptures that we see that God's holy love is displayed 
is through the way that his judgments fall on those who oppose his glory, who oppose his people. And one of the ways that we know that God is just is by his willingness to punish injustice. Now, why does this matter for us today? Now, if we want to know why this matters for us today, we need to understand why it mattered to the Christians who first received the letter of Revelation, which, if you remember, we've been saying that this church, this group of churches that John wrote this very letter to were a group of churches that were suffering, right? Christianity started breaking out uh, under the Roman Empire. The Christians were saying, Jesus is king. And, and the Romans were like authorities. They were saying, no, no, our guy's king, right? Uh, and so uh, the church was being persecuted. They were being marginalized. The Romans had the power. They had the money. And so even people that would have normally been seen as allies to the groups that were becoming Christianized uh, were now becoming, uh, were now seen as enemies, they're now seen as liabilities. And so the church started suffering at the hands of all kinds of people. They were being persecuted. They were being often beaten and martyred and thrown into prison. And so they would ask questions like, dude, where is God in all this? Has he left us? Has he forgotten about us? Does, did, did he just get tired of us? Like, where is he? Are our enemies just too big for him? Does he just not care? And look, maybe, maybe you've asked questions like that too. And so what we see in the book of Revelation, because this is the group that John is writing to, he's writing to comfort them. He's writing to give them a picture of true reality. And true reality is, is more real than what we can touch and what we can see. True reality is what's happening beneath the surface. What's happening behind the scenes? And so we've been seeing like all these crazy visions that John is having. And as we've dug into it, we, we, we've seen that, that each of these visions and the symbols and images that he has uh, mean something that is comforting and good and beautiful and satisfying to Christians who are suffering. We started last week the, 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 the seven trumpet blasts. And in John's vision, there's these seven different trumpets that are, are blasting. They're just blaring. And with each trumpet uh, is, is a warning, a warning that goes out throughout the world that warns that God's judgment is around the corner. And this week, so last week we looked at the first four of those trumpets. And this week we're going to look at the next two trumpet blasts. Um, is it kind of warm in here, right? I know, I, I was told that, like, the, the AC wasn't working because obviously, like, we've got it in saran wrap or whatever this is. Um, but uh, I don't know. I was kind of hoping that, like, the wind outside would cool us down. But, um, yeah, so anyways, um, let's just continue. <laughs> um, I just want to know if it was just, like, me. So, all right. Here's our big idea. Our big idea with this week's text is that those who don't repent will be consumed by their idols and in the end destroyed. Those who don't repent will be consumed by their idols and in the end destroyed. So this is like one of those feel-good sermons, right? 
<laughs> like someone should write a book on these verses. It will clearly be a bestseller. Um, that's what our text is about today. So uh, with that, let me pray, because uh, I'll need help, and then we'll go into the text. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all uh, this church family. I pray for those um, that might be either visiting here for the first time or tuning in uh, online for the first time, that for all of us, God, your word will come to life, that you would just open the eyes of our heart that we might see what is good in your word, what is beautiful in this passage, what is true and satisfying. Holy Spirit, we need your help for that to happen, and so we invite you to just open our eyes, to stir our hearts, that we might see um, just the excellencies of Christ in this passage. It's in his name we pray, amen. So by way of review, here's where we ended last week. At the end of our passage last week, when we looked at the forced first four uh, trumpet blasts, uh, there was this vision that John received of an eagle. And the eagle was saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and this is whoa, like W-O-E, right? So this whoa is like, a, like oh my gosh, like this is, this is jarring, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's almost like, hey, repent, like, if one were to say, woe is me, it's another, it's another way of saying, like, like, man, I'm in trouble, right? And so this, this, this eagle says, woe, 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 because this next three trumpets, the last of the seven trumpet blasts, things are about to go down. Things are going to get worse than they did with the first four trumpets. And so that was a warning call. These trumpet blasts are warning calls. Now, what is the purpose of a warning? It's to lead anybody who's listening to safety. That's the purpose of a warning, right? The purpose of a warning is to say, hey, something bad is coming. Get yourself to safety, right? Like, if that was not the goal, then there wouldn't be any warning. There wouldn't be any trumpet blast. And so I don't want you to miss this, that the very nature of these seven trumpet blasts is the mercy of God. That in these descriptions of his judgment coming, we see his mercy as a very foundation of it all. Because by the very fact that the trumpets are blasting, he's warning people to run to safety, to run to Christ. And so we're going to see that starting here with point number one. First point we see in this text is that the demonic forces are let loose. Demonic forces are let loose. Let's read this um, chunk of text from the first 11 verses of chapter 9. By the way, when we did the reading, when Kelsey did the reading, she read the first 12 verses, but we're actually going through all the verses in chapter 9, all right? So we're going to go through this quickly. All right. First 11 verses of chapter 9. It says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he, so notice he calls the star a he. So star is a person, or, or, or it's being, uh, it's a symbol for a, 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 a person, uh, a being. 
It says, so this star, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened from the smoke of the shaft. But then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the nose, or the noise rather, of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. That's a gnarly scene, right? This is a crazy scene. This scene is the stuff of nightmares. I want to just picture this vision, right? The fifth trumpet blares. Someone who's, who's, who's like described as a star falls from the heavens. We know that this creature is named the destroyer, right? That's what Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon means. It means destroyer. And so this one who's like a bright burning star who is known as the destroyer falls from the sky. And after he falls from the sky, he opens up this gateway into the ground and smoke starts rising everywhere. And this destroyer releases like these hellish creatures that are bent on terror. I just think of like your worst nightmare, right? Like this isn't, this isn't the stuff of CGI, right? Like this is like the Dementors in Harry Potter, or like a horde of just just these disgusting creatures, like straight out of Cloverfield or Stranger Things or something like that, and just hordes of them crawling up, flying up out of the out of the ground. And what are images like this doing in this passage? I want you to remember that the pictures that we get throughout the book of Revelation are symbols. They're not meant to be taken literally. This is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is meant to be seen as symbols, as illustrations of a greater reality that's happening behind the scenes. All right? It's using metaphor here. And the symbols are describing what exactly that is. Now, we get clues for how to interpret those singles, symbols rather, from, the New, from the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us uh, how to understand these particular images in Revelation 9. For example, the eighth plague, uh, uh, the eighth plague of the Exodus story, you know, when, uh, when the Jews, when the nation of Israel were rescued out of slavery from Egypt, uh, and those those. Uh, plagues came down uh, against Pharaoh and his people. The eighth plague of the Exodus story, there was a swarm of locusts like no one had ever seen before. 
It says that the swarm of locusts blackened the land because they, they covered up the sun. <laughs> and then everything green was eaten up. And those plagues, those plagues in the Exodus story were, were warnings, right? Moses comes up to Pharaoh and he says, hey, like, let my people go. If you don't, like, you know, something bad's going to happen and something bad does happen and that's, that's a plague, right? And then they repeat this cycle. It happens again and again. The plagues were warnings, just like these trumpet blasts that we read about in Revelation. With each of the trumpet blasts and the judgments that come down as a result of them, each of them is a warning, just like in the Exodus story. We also see uh, in Joel chapter 2 that the prophet Joel was warned of a, uh, he warned God's people of an army of locusts that were going to come. And when he described this army of locusts, he said that there would be fire and smoke. There would be darkening of the sky, too. And that the advance of the locusts, like when they came in, uh, that it would sound like the charge of war horses and the sound of chariots. And so look, the connection between Joel chapter 2 and Revelation 9 like could not be any clearer, right? Do you see that? But there are some Bible teachers over the last 50 years who've kind of had like this warped, sensationalistic view of interpretation where they say that these, these locusts represent the tools of modern war- warfare, that the bottomless pit is a bunker in the ground, and that the locusts are Apache helicopters. They'll say like things like, oh, did you know that there's Apache helicopters in the book of, of Revelation? And they'll point right here to Revelation 9 and see, see right there, those locusts and the sound they make? That's an Apache helicopter. And it's America's job to bring God's judgment on the world. That's what's being described here. I mean, dude, some clown on national television just said this recently, like just, just several months ago. Some guy with like a, this, this, this nationally syndicated like TV evangelist uh, program said this exact statement about Apache helicopters in Revelation 9. But man, how would that, how would that interpretation be any comfort to first century Christians that are enduring suffering and persecution? How would... Bunkers and Apache helicopters and, and, you know, talking about, like, America's role and on the world stage. Like, how would that be any comfort to somebody who was living 2,000 years ago, enduring persecution, impossible martyrdom? There'd be no comfort at all. They'd be like, what are you talking about? See, as we've said again and again, if we want to understand what the book of Revelation is supposed to mean for us, we need to know first what it meant for them back then. We need to go through that in order to figure out what it means for us today. Remember, John is writing to comfort those Christians. He says that right there in Revelation chapter 1. He says the purpose of his letter is to comfort those Christians, not us 2,000 years later. But he will comfort us 2,000 years later, but through understanding with those Christians how they receive this. Now, to unveil, he wrote to unveil the truth of how God is sovereignly working about how God is still in charge, how God is still good and he's still just and he's still fair in spite of their experience in suffering. He's writing and telling them, look, there's something greater going on. 
behind the curtain of the stage of the world. There's something greater going on. And that the Lord is going to vindicate them. Their suffering won't be in vain. Verse 4 says the locusts, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And if you remember a few weeks ago, what, we, what that meant was not a physical, actual, literal seal. It's Old Testament imagery to talk about those who have the Holy Spirit upon them, those who are followers of Jesus. They're marked by the Holy Spirit. So what that verse tells us is that the locusts that swarmed out from the pit in obedience to the angel of the pit, who, by the way, is Satan, if you haven't figured that out. We learn that later in Revelation 13. Uh, that these, this swarm from the pit that are responding in obedience to Satan, they're carrying out their destruction in a sphere that is different from the fields of Egypt that we read about in Exodus or the lands of Israel, like in Joel chapter 2. They're pictured visually as locusts, but the plague that they bring is not an agricultural one, but a spiritual one. How do we know that? It's because they're only given jurisdiction to harm those who don't have the seal of God. In other words, they can only torment uh, those people that don't belong to God for a limited amount of time. And it says that this spiritual suffering that they're going to receive is even worse than, than death. So, so the plague that they bring is not an agricultural one like we read in the Exodus. This is a spiritual one. It's something that happens beneath the surface, inside the human heart. And look, this is the great irony of serving evil. The great irony of serving Satan is that, on the one hand, the demonic forces aren't allowed to inflict like this level of suffering that we read about. They're not allowed to inflict that level of suffering on the enemies of God, or on their enemies, rather, which are the servants of God. They're only allowed to inflict that suffering on their, their own allies. Did you catch that? Like, they're only allowed to inflict suffering on those who live not for the kingdom of heaven, but those for the kingdom of earth. Those who don't worship God, but worship people, places, and things instead. And they're like, all right, we'll do that. We'll consume them. Have you ever noticed that when you place your hope in the things of creation, like sex, money, power, stuff, it just never satisfies. It never satisfies. You just find yourself wanting more and more and more and more. And the more that you seem to be able to hoard for yourself, the more you, you, you start to think, I don't have enough. And you just want even more. It's like the old adage from the philosopher uh, Biggie Smalls in his poem, No Money, More Problems. He said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. The more you get, the more it just comes. The more problems you have, it just never satisfies. The irony of serving Satan is multiplied in the fact that whatever relief that death might give to those that are feeling spiritually tortured in this way, whatever relief death might give is just completely denied them. 
So what does that tell us about these demonic forces? They're ruthless. Ruthless. Whatever, wherever it is that you place your trust, whether it's in your body, your, your, your home, uh, your, your body, your home, your status, your stuff, your ammo, like none, none of that matters when you're facing these kinds of creatures. You can't even die to escape their threat. Our passage says that many are going to long for death, but they won't even be allowed to taste it. And why is that? Why is it that they're going to long for death? Because there's a death that's worse than physical death. Spiritual death is worse than physical death. It's the kind of death that leaves you constantly unsatisfied constantly scraping the bottom of the barrel for something that will give you value, to give you meaning, give you purpose, give you direction. And you just find yourself more and more lost, more and more blind, more and more you have no idea what you're doing. You see, when you push God behind a smoke screen, you start to go day to day without any purpose, without any vision, and then life starts to become a burden. And on the one hand, you might be like, man, I just want to, I just want to escape, I just want to die, I want to escape this. But on the other hand, you're afraid to. That's what it's talking about here. But I want you to notice that in the midst of this, just this crazy scene in this vision, that the offer of salvation is still there. These people are holding on to darkness. They're refusing to repent. But the trumpet keeps blaring, it keeps blasting, calling people to run to safety, to run to Christ. And this is where it leads us to our next trumpet blast. Uh, Point number two, the worldly forces are let loose. Worldly forces are let loose. See, the sounding of the sixth trumpet continues uh, this, these like demonically influenced Judgments. It says in verse 13 that the sixth angel blew his trumpet. He says, And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So when the sixth trumpet sounds, four demonic angels are released to kill a third of humanity by fire, smoke, brimstone, sulfur. It continues in verse 16. It says, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Now, what is the meaning of this? This trumpet warns 
of worldly human conflicts and disasters. Things like warfare, violence. This trumpet warns of worldly human conflicts and disasters that God is going to use to bring people to repentance. You see, war, just like poverty, has always been with humanity. I mean, there hasn't been a single generation that's been able to escape the effects of war and poverty. I mean, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 24, he says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. And here in Revelation 9, he seems to be talking about just the broad effects of war all around the globe. Like in verse 14, he talks about how there's four angels that are sent out. What is the significance of that? The number four usually refers to uh, points on a compass. When you hear the number four and you're talking about like going out throughout the earth, that's usually supposed to make you think of a compass, which basically sums up the whole world, right? North, south, east, and west. So this is not talking about like some great Armageddon or some nuclear holocaust like some people have said over the last hundred years. Like some people read this, this, this trumpet, the sixth trumpet, and said, you know what that's talking about? That's talking about World War III. That's not talking about World War III. It's not talking about World War 33, right? Like again, how could that have any meaning or context to Christians in the first century? It doesn't, all right? So what it's talking about here is just military conflicts all around the world and all throughout history. We further know that it shouldn't be taken literally because there's not a single place in the world that a literal army or army of 200 horsemen could actually gather. Sorry, 200,000. Like 200, that doesn't sound like that much. Um, it's intended to be a picture of just the monstrous devastation and the ugliness of war. God is warning about what vile wickedness humans are capable of when he removes his hand of restraint. You see, I've, I've traveled to um, Rwanda a couple times uh, in, in my 20s uh, with a team uh, that was sent to equip and to encourage uh, Christians there and churches there. Uh, and if you're familiar with Rwanda's recent history, you know that in 1994, this great genocide broke out between two rivaling clans. Uh, the majority clan sought out to completely eradicate uh, the minority clan and, uh, and, and anyone who would try to stop them. I mean, it was brutal. Like, like they were uh, trapping people in houses, in, in hotels, you may have seen the, the movie Hotel Rwanda uh, with Don Cheadle. Uh, they trap people even in churches, in mosques, and places of worship, and then burn them to the ground with men, women, and children inside. I mean, it's tragic. About a million people were killed purely because of their ethnicity. Five out of six children that were alive at that time witnessed murder on a grand scale. Like they watched their neighbors, their parents, their aunts, uncles, their pastors, like they, they witnessed murder happening on a grand scale. 
Man, I, I talked to some of these kids like when, 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 like, uh, when they grew up or when they were teenagers. Just 10 years later, I was, I was there and I talked to, talked to some of them. And the devastation was so much greater than just a million people who were murdered. There's like physical, psychological damage that was far reaching, likely gonna continue to reach for generations. See, as 21st century humans, as 21st century men and women, like we like to think of ourselves as the masters of our destiny. What we see here in Revelation 9 is that when God says, like, all right, I'll let you guys take the helm. I'll let you guys take the helm. We'll kind of see, see what kind of mess you make of it. Dude, we destroy each other. We destroy each other. I mean, think what's happening, like, in the Middle East right now. Think of what's happened recently in, in Syria. Think about the 60 million unborn babies that have been killed under the sanction of law in our country. See, with the sixth trumpet God warns, this is what you're like when you're left alone with your lust for money and power. This is who you turn into. You turn into savages. You turn into monsters. God hands us over to what we want, sex, money, and power. When his hand in restraint, his hand of grace is, it lets go of us and we follow our lust for those things to their furthest conclusions. Man, we destroy one another and it's tragic. This is the same thing that Paul warned about in Romans chapter one. When he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, he's talking about idols. Uh, an idol is anything that you choose to worship or to find uh, value and, and worth in other than God. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he, he goes on about what that looks like. In verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. You see, with the sixth trumpet, it warns that God will deal with us according to our sinful desires if we ignore him. He'll show us what life is like when he lets go of us. Now, how do we respond to a feel-good message like this? How do we respond to the entirety of Revelation chapter 9? Just give you a few quick practical responses to this. Number one, you recognize the demonic forces around you. To recognize the demonic forces around you, the demonic forces that are at play, that influence you. Verse 20 and 21 says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So two-thirds of the world 
lives through the judgments of God that are described in Revelation 9. Two-thirds of the world live through that and are offered deliverance, yet they still don't turn. They refuse to live in, in true reality. Why would, why would they do that? Why would anyone do that? The text says they're bound. They're bound by dark forces. They're bound by their idols that they're turning to. They're looking for hope in things that they can make or buy, like silver, bronze, stone, and, and wood, which shows that they've given themselves over to demonic powers who are hell-bent on seeking to destroy the image of God. And so then they themselves become blind, deaf, and lame to the goodness of the gospel and to the beauty of Christ. You ever find yourself trying to, like, talk yourself into believing, like, I've got my sin under control. I've got those temptations under control, right? Like, I've got my idols under control. Like, I, I know, I, I've, I've, I've got this. This text is like, no, you think you can control them, but, but it's actually them that control you. Recognize the demonic forces around you. Go to war with them. Pray to God for strength in fighting them and going to battle against them. When they speak lies to you, come back with the truth of God's word. Rest in the gospel. So number one, we recognize the demonic forces around you. Number two, we rest in the sovereign plan of God. Rest in the sovereign plan of God. I want you to notice, not only from this passage, but from the one that we've read the last couple weeks, God protects his people. He protects his people. He protects those he's chosen. He protects those who have come to him, who truly belong to him. He always has. God's sovereignty is not conniving, but covenantal. Whatever evil he does allow into the world will only destroy his enemies, but never his people, never his church. And what the enemy intends for evil, you, know, you notice that God like releases these demonic forces and they're just trying to destroy like whatever, whatever they can. And God sovereignly in how big he is and how just mind-boggling he is, it, like, you almost can't like wrap your mind around it and how like God uses their evil desires as a tool and mechanism for his sovereign divine judgments. You see that in Revelation 9? You see, what the enemy intends for evil, God will always use for good. He'll use for the good of his people and the glory of his name. We see this practically throughout church history. Every time the church has ever been persecuted, like in the first century, right? Like, dude, the Roman Empire was, was just like peddled to the metal. They were trying to go as fast as they could to eradicate Christianity. And what happened? as they were arresting people, beating them, martyring them. All 12 of the original apostles got martyred, except for John, who wrote this letter. He, he, he was exiled to Patmos, where he spent the rest of his days. After they tried to boil him in a vat of oil, and he survived. And what happened? Did that destroy Christianity? 
No, dude, it exploded. It exploded. Every time that you see the nations, like, like churches persecuted, you see just revival break out. Every world war was, that we see even in recent history has been followed by revival. See, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you rest in God's sovereignty. In spite of suffering, in spite of persecution, in spite of martyrdom, See, the reason that, we're, that we are worshiping the Lord Jesus on an entirely different continent, like thousands of years later from the early church, is because God is sovereign. If you belong to him, his seal is on your forehead, and you'll be protected from that judgment. Lastly, we respond by repenting of ways that you've lived for things other than God. Repent of ways that you yourself have lived for things other than God. Don't be complacent or dismissive about sin in your own life. Don't trivialize, don't trivialize it. Pay attention to your heart, to how you use your time, use your money, use your Sundays. Where's your allegiance? Like, Don't dismiss the possibility of idolatry in your own heart. Man, it's so easy for us to, to like point to other people and say, like, I'm thankful I'm just not like them and overlook the sin and idolatry in, in, in our own hearts. No, the very mark of a Christian life is it's a life that repents. It's a life that repented once and continually. That doesn't mean that we as Christians, that we live perfect lives. I absolutely don't. Having a life of repentance doesn't mean that you live a perfect life. It just means that you see your life and you know that it's imperfect. You know that. You own that. You're not trying to hide that. And because you know it's imperfect, you see that as a reason to cling to Jesus and run to him again and again and again. You see, if we think that we can just put repentance aside and say, I'll do that later. Right? Like, I know I should probably repent of this, but I don't know, I'm kind of enjoying This is kind of fun right now. Like, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do that later. This passage, Revelation 9, should reveal to you the true reality. That would be a huge mistake. That would be a huge mistake. Is the mercy of God patient? Yes, absolutely. Is the mercy of God long-suffering? Is God willing to wait? Yes, absolutely. But it has an end. It has an end. We don't know when that end is, so my encouragement to you is to practice daily repentance. Repent of actions, repent of attitudes, of your heart, and just slow down enough to ask like, what is going on in my heart? Seek help from other Christians. Trust in God's grace. And look, when we do that, that will be our witness. That will be our witness to a world who desperately needs the Savior. A world that needs our lives to show that God is good. He's just that he is beautiful and true, and that fullness of life is only found in him through Christ.
So man, for those of us who don't know Christ, or maybe have walked away from the church for years, the invitation is to repent and believe. That's all you gotta do. That's all you gotta do. Repent and believe and run back to his arms of grace. And if you already belong to Jesus, if you've been faithfully following him for a few weeks, a few years, a few decades, the invitation for you is to continue repenting, to continue believing. And that when you do, you see more and more the greatness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. You see more and more the vileness of your own sin and wickedness. And with that, you see more and more the greatness of our wonderful Savior. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.